0: Let's just sing. This is nice. Let's go. Okay, so welcome back. Really, we're really glad you're here. Um, we're going to get into this in just a second. Again, this conference has been uh, something we've been praying about and planning for for a long, long time. But before we do any of that, okay, we just, I just want to kind of share with you something that is um, pertinent to our body. It's, it's, a, it's a big deal. There, I want to just take a minute and let, the, let you all know, if you don't already know, that... There's a man in this church body that's been here for a long, long time. A dear brother in the Lord. And today is going to be his last Sunday with us because he's going to move down to Florida. And he's going to stay with his daughter down there. Jimmy Trent has sat down here in the front for a lot, a lot of years. And without him sitting right behind me, I wouldn't have had the confidence to get up here half the time. I'm here to tell you, in 2008, for those of you that have been here, you might remember... We put together a little video, and we put together a series of videos, actually. This particular video was put together uh, just highlighting how people in the church selflessly serve and contribute. And we did one for Jimmy, and it, so it's several years old, but it is just a really good reminder of the kind of a heart and a spirit, not just that he has, but that we all should have. So I want you all just to watch this very brief little video that we did back in '08. You know, there is, I, I, I want to bring this up to you again before we even get into the subject of our week. Um, th- th- there is a time, the Bible says, to give honor to whom honor is due. And, and Jimmy, you, you've been a, a friend and a supporter of me personally, as well as this church and of course the Lord, for so, so many years. And God has used you. I mean, He really, really has. And we're going to miss you. We, we have decided we're going to block off that spot. Nobody's ever allowed to sit there. We're going to put like a big steel block there. Or I don't know what we're going to do. But God bless you. We just want to, we just want to pray for Jimmy. And, and when this service is over this morning, uh, you know, if you want to come down and just hug his neck and tell him you love him and you miss him, that, that'd probably be a great thing to do. So let's, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the brothers and sisters that have gone before us for generations and have just lived an exemplary life. Thank you for Jimmy. Thank you for all that means to you and to this body. And Lord, as he goes on um, and moves down south, we're a little bit jealous about the weather, but uh, but really rejoicing that uh, he has a place to go. Thankful that he can be with his daughter and thankful that um, you have a plan for him down there as well. Our loss in First Baptist family is going to be the gain of another church family down there, I'm sure of it. And so bless them, uh, protect him, help him, keep his health good and strong. Um, and allow us, Lord, just to rejoice in the fact that we've had the privilege to share a bunch of time together here on this earth. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all the ways you bless us. And, and just and just bless Jimmy and, and all his endeavors going forward. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you, brother. Thank you so much for your friendship. Okay, um, let's get started. We, we are kicking off this conference this morning. And kind of as an intro, I just want to take you all the way back to the very beginning To set a stage. And when I when I say the beginning, I mean the very beginning. According to the biblical record, in the very, very beginning, we have the story that there is a cherub, his name is Lucifer. He is the anointed cherub that covereth, and in Isaiah chapter 14, the Bible records what happened with Lucifer, the anointed cherub, when he was lifted up with pride, and he said that he would exalt his throne above the throne of the Most High. He wanted to be above God Almighty, and as a result of this prideful act, it was sin, and he was judged, and he was cast out of heaven. And in so doing, then, God then creates everything that he created in the universe in six literal 24-hour days. The crown of God's creation is man, because man bears the very image and the very likeness of God Almighty. And he is the crown of God's creation because he has the image and likeness. He's also the crown of God's creation because he rules over all the rest of God's creation, the animals and the plants and the fish and the birds and all of nature. And so literally, Adam and Eve become the rulers of planet Earth, and God gives them the commission to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the Earth. Well, they are placed in a garden, the Garden of Eden. In Ezekiel 28, it even describes that that is the place that Lucifer himself used to be when he was in good graces with God. And with this story, Lucifer, now the devil, or Satan is obviously upset about the whole situation, wishing that he could get back at God Almighty, but of course that's impossible. So what can he do to get back at God Almighty except to potentially attack the thing that God loves the very most, mankind? So as a serpent, he reveals himself, and in Genesis chapter 3, and he presents himself to Eve, and he causes man to sin. And that sin that came upon mankind is passed upon all generations. It divides us from God. That fellowship with God was broken and we are hopelessly lost of a chance of ever regaining that fellowship of our own accord. But God so loved the world and he set in place a plan and he made a plan to restore that broken fellowship with mankind and that plan to restore fellowship with a fallen, sinful man is what we refer to as salvation. It's what we refer to as salvation. This week, that is the subject of what we're going to talk about. The Certainty Conference is the title that we have given it, and it is based on verses 20 and 21 of Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs twenty-two twenty and 21 say this, Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? And that is exactly what we need to do. We need to be able to answer to anybody who might ask us the certainty of the words that God has written to us. And the specific subject that we're going to be looking at this week is the biblical plan of salvation. Now, for many of you that have spent many years in church and and you would think about, well, okay, the biblical plan of salvation is a fairly simple subject, is it not? Uh, Yes, it is. And you may ask the question, well, then why in the world do we need to spend four days and four nights talking about something that is really very simple to understand? Well, surprisingly, there actually is a problem because there are far too many people in this world that just don't agree or teach the accurate revelation of God's simple plan of salvation. There's a lot of people that have another story. And that being the case, and it is, would you not agree that this subject trumps every other subject? Would you not agree that this very issue is that important? Listen, you ask those of us, all of us are, you know, a day closer to the end than we were yesterday. We're all getting a little bit older, little by little, but as you get older, this particular subject becomes greater and greater in importance because regardless of the other doctrinal things that we might like to discuss, we want to make sure we got this one right, right? I mean, if you've ever been to a funeral, you want to make sure you got this one right. And so it is that important and it is that critical. Listen, your eternal soul depends on it. Now, before... You know, I, I, I cause you to consider doubt and wonder about what it is you, but listen, the good news is that regarding the simple truth of salvation, the, the, that it is actually simple to understand. It's not difficult to understand regardless of what the detractors might say, regardless of what other philosophical wranglings that people might have and try and propose new ways to understand God's eternal truth. It is not hard to understand, and so we're going to come back to and just reinforce, to many of you who have understood this correctly, we're just going to reinforce that truth. To some of you who are still questioning, we're going to nail it down once and for all, and what it will do is it will give you the certainty of the words of truth to be able to answer anybody who may have a question or a philosophy or a story that differs from what you have always understood about the biblical plan of salvation. And so the way I'm introducing this whole week and the way we're introducing this day is with the title that I've given this message, Setting the Stage for the Salvation Debate. And so what I want us to do is just pray and then we're going to look at several of the points that we have in front of us. So let's go together before the Lord. Heavenly Father, again we come before you thankfully and just ask you to reveal to us through your word this week. This is going to be a lengthy process. This is going to be a situation, Lord, that we will lay the foundation and place stone upon stone upon that foundation to build the body of truth that you have given to us. We're going to break it down in some detail as you have shown us in your word, and I pray for each and every everyone that's here that regardless of their situation, those who have understood this for many years to just be comforted and reassured in what they understand and have confidence like never before but maybe there's others lord who are here today and have yet to embrace the truth of the simplicity of the gospel of the lord jesus christ today could be the very day that they once and for all surrender their heart to you that they would just simply believe and receive the message of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that we would all leave here changed, that we would be excited to continue to come back and to continue to learn through these next several days the details of the single most important subject that any of us could ever know, your gospel of salvation. So teach us, I pray, and thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the first point that I want us to see is just the simple gospel, because that indeed is what it is. The word gospel literally means good news, and it is defined for you in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the first four verses. And in 1 Corinthians 15 in the first four verses, the Bible is very clear to define for you that the gospel by which Paul was saved, the gospel which Paul preached, the gospel that would have saved all of our souls if we've believed it, is very simply this that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That means that we are sinners and that he died in our place, according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. This is the simple gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only reason he had to go through the death, the burial, and the resurrection is because of our sin. Because of that beginning with Adam, and then the sin passed upon all men. The plan of salvation. What do you need to do to be saved? Maybe you're wondering that for yourself. Maybe you're wondering how to present that to other people. One simple way that people throughout the centuries have used is what we refer to as the Romans Road. And basically it's a string of verses that come through the book of Romans that if put together just present for us this simple plan of salvation. And there are different verses in Romans that you could use. I just picked four or five very simple places that are very common. Romans 3.23 that says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us is a sinner, and every one of us as a result cannot go to heaven based on our good merits. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so that means because of the fact that we have all sinned, we have all earned a payment, the wage. The payment that we have all earned is death. And when the Bible talks about death, he's not just talking about physical death, which it includes, but he's talking about spiritual death or spiritual separation from God in a real place of torment called hell. You could then go to Romans chapter five and verse number eight, where the Bible says that God commends or demonstrates or proves his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not die for us after he waits for us to clean up our act. While we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross. He died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. And then lastly, in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says very clearly that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. So you need to receive that personally. It is a gift, like we said. Salvation is a gift. Wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so you simply receive that gift. And Romans 10:13 says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody at all, whosoever you can write your name in that verse. If you if I, Jeff, will call upon the name of the Lord, I will be saved. And this is the simple presentation of the gospel. Every one of you here has the mental faculties to be able to memorize four or five verses of the scripture and to be able to share them with your friends anytime you have the opportunity as God gives you opportunity. The Romans road, the simple presentation of the gospel, it is just that easy. We are sinners, we deserve hell. God loved us and did what he did by dying on the cross and raising again to provide salvation and then offers it to us as a free gift. And if we, through our free will, whosoever will, will receive that personally, we'll be saved. That's what the Bible says. In fact, it is so ridiculously simple, it's shocking to understand that there are the, still the vast majority of human beings on planet Earth that don't receive it. I mean, it blows me away. When I was near my 22nd birthday in the college campus that I went to back then in Arkansas, I heard this story of the gospel literally for the first time in my entire life. I had never heard it prior to that. And I immediately received it upon one hearing. Why? It just made sense to me. And I thought to myself, if this is true, why in the world would I say no? Who in their right mind would say no to this? But people do. And it is amazing. In fact, it gets you to think about the fact, why is it that men won't receive such a simple, simple story that is of such great importance? Well, I think it's partly because man, in his nature, in our nature, we want desperately to feel like we contribute something to this eternity with God in heaven. Man has a desire to not just take a handout, but but earn their way and say, Look, I did this, therefore I deserve to go. And, and that's something that's just buried in our soul, it's actually a hindrance. It says in second Corinthians chapter eleven and verse number three But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And the fact that the gospel is simple becomes its own stumbling block to unregenerate man as they think and consider, oh my, it cannot possibly be that easy. Certainly, I need to do something. And that's what people think. But the Bible says that that is a deception that comes from the devil. That he is deceiving those people who think that into thinking they must do something So that somehow or another, they won't actually just receive the gospel as is presented to them. There has to be a spirit at work deceiving people, keeping them from that real relationship with God, and more importantly, eternity in heaven. But before we get into all that, I want to lay some groundwork with you because, again, we're going to be going at this hard and heavy for several days. And so your second point is a sincere motivation. A sincere motivation. And this is just me kind of pulling back the flesh and giving you a glimpse into my heart in this thing. I I want you to understand that if you're going to be with us these days, and I hope you will, then you begin to hear us expound the scriptures and lay out truth versus error. I I want you to understand, we're not mad at anybody. I, I want you to understand that There are a lot of really nice people who just don't agree with the gospel. Uh, There are a lot of really moral people that if they were your next door neighbors, you'd be thrilled to have them as next door neighbors. I mean, they're kind and they're nice and they're honest and they're hardworking, but potentially deceived into believing a story that is not a biblical story. And so, if we speak in a manner that is condemning of a false religious system, that of itself is condemning and damning people to a devil's hell, please understand we are not attacking any individual. We are not upset with anybody. But I think that it's important that you understand that we want to emphasize what we support, not what we oppose. That's important. We're going to emphasize the biblical plan of salvation, but in so doing, I want to remind you of what we talked about last week. Last week in Romans chapter 12 and in verse number 9, we talked about how God says, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And we learned that if love is going to be without dissimulation or hypocrisy, that that requires that what we do is that we will love the good. And we will hate the evil. They are the two sides of the same coin. Loving one requires that we hate the polar opposite. Okay? And so with that, in order to love truth, you have to hate error. In order to love God, you have to hate sin. In order to love purity, you have to hate defilement. And to think that somehow you can just love all of it without differentiation and with the spirit of tolerance The truth of the matter is that we saw last week, you don't really love anything. You don't really love anything. And so that's an important thing. And especially error that causes people to be deceived, to put their trust into a non-biblical system, so-called salvation, that causes them to ultimately spend eternity in a devil's hell. That should bother you. And it is a tragedy that actually exists and will continue to exist because in Matthew chapter seven, the Lord Jesus himself warned us of this in verses 21 to 23, that there will be people that will come to him in the ultimate judgment and they will say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these wonderful religious things in your name? And you know the funny thing about these verses? Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't do those. Who you think you're talking to? I know you what you you've not done any of that stuff. He doesn't say that. He, in fact, doesn't even deal with the, the the religious works that they did. They may have done them. He just says, Depart from me. I never knew you. He doesn't say I knew you and then you lived too sinfully and you lost your salvation. He says, I never knew you. In other words, there's people, there will be people as defined by. Matthew 7, 21, 23, who thought they were okay. They put their faith and trust in their ability to do enough religious things. And at the end of it all, when they stand before the Lord, they came up wrong. They came up wrong. What a tragedy. You don't want that to happen to you, and you don't want that to happen to anybody you love. You don't even want that to happen to people you don't love. That would be an awful tragedy terrible thing to happen but it is happening and so as a result all of the cults all of the false world religious systems if they are indeed false I propose to you in the spirit of love they must be exposed for what they are first and foremost so that you can be armed with the truth and not confused but secondly, so that you can help others that God may put in your path, so you can help them to know the real truth and the real God and the real story of salvation. That is why we are still here breathing free air. This is why God has left us here after our salvation. It's the only loving thing to do. Do you see that? Especially concerning eternity. And as I thought about this, I thought, How about an illustration for this? And and I don't know why this illustration came to my mind, but it did. And I thought about the ancient medical practice of bloodletting. Okay, bloodletting was a thing used throughout centuries where doctors would cut people and bleed them with the idea that the diseased blood would leave their body and then they would be better. Well, over time, thankfully, we figured out that that's not good, right? (laughs) And so we don't do that anymore. By the way, there are cults who still do that. That may be of interest to you. Anyways, this idea of bleeding people out to heal them is actually detrimental to their health. So knowing that medical information, we are, are we not now duty-bound to tell people, hey, 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 stop cutting yourself. Stop doing that. This is not good for you. What is really good for you is whatever other prescribed course will actually be helpful. I mean, we are duty-bound to do that, and spiritually speaking, that is our motivation. Okay, so let's get back to the issue of salvation now. Point number three. Concerning this issue of biblical salvation, there really are only two competing theories. There's really only two alternatives to this doctrine that in theology we call soteriology. You don't have to know that. It just means the doctrine of salvation. And it centers around the question that I have for you in your notes. Does man have to do something in order to be saved? And obviously, it's a yes or a no question. So if you say yes, man has to do something in order to be saved, then you are putting your faith in a system of works. You're putting your faith in the fact that God said, do one, two, three, four, five, and if you do them all faithfully, then I will give you the gift of eternal life, okay, This would be the vast majority of all of the world's religions, except for biblical Christianity. Every single other cult or false world religion, Christian or non-Christian, puts their ultimate faith and trust in the fact that you keep a list of do's and you avoid a list of don'ts. And as long as you faithfully do those things over the course of your life, And end your life in a state of grace, having checked all the boxes sufficiently, then and only then might you hopefully make your way into eternal paradise. I mean, you could list any religion you can dream of, they all fall into this category, except for biblical Christianity, which is obviously the other one. Does man have to do something in order to be saved? The answer is no which then becomes not a system of works, but a system of grace. Grace is a gift from God. Grace is what God does for you. It's not what you do for you. So this would be the right answer. Now, here's where it gets tricky. And this is really the reason why we have planned this week for you. Because even in the world of the system of grace, remember, there is a spirit that is at work in this world to deceive men. And there are plenty of intelligent thinking adults that look at that whole grace versus works thing and they're like, yeah, the works thing just doesn't make sense. I get that. So I'm not really jumping in that camp. I'm gonna go over in the grace camp. Well, the devil's not stupid. So that means that there is going to be, there there can be, and, and there has been, by the way, A system of grace that has been perverted beyond the biblical limits. It has been taken to an extreme that cannot be defended by the scripture. Listen, the fact that you reject your own works for salvation is great, but you need to understand that the only way that we can know the truth is to strictly stay by what God says in his word, right? And so if somebody is taking anything to a limit beyond that which the scriptures say clearly, you better be careful about that. And what happens is, is in this system on the side of grace, on the side of not doing anything, if there is a system that is presented or proposed that is, boy, it's awful close to what I know, but it sounds a little different, and it's not works, so, okay, I'm okay with it. Well, that's what's happening all around us right now. That's what's going on in the world today. That's what's happening in modern contemporary Christianity. More and more and more people are falling prey to this extremist, perverted grace view. And this is the, this is the basis. This is setting the stage for what I want us to talk about for the next several days. It, it is that important. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we had seen verse 3 previously. We continue with verse 4. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, you you might well bear with him. Excuse me. So this system of the overly extreme perversion of grace is referred to historically as Reformed theology. We're going to talk about that in great detail. It's referred to philosophically as Calvinism. And Calvinism gets its name after a man named John Calvin. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But what I want you to understand before we continue to go any further is this. Both extremes are false. The system of works is false. And this extreme system of grace that we will be defining in a few minutes and throughout the days is also false. God's truth stands alone as God's truth. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, let God be true, but every man a liar. It doesn't matter if the overwhelming majority of the population of planet earth agrees with one of the extremes. All that matters is what does God say. And so we have Plan to clear off a space this week. I'm so glad you're here, so that we can just look in detail about what exactly God says. Let's look at our next point, number four: the current culture. This is just a little bit of a recent modern uh, modern history lesson. Okay, I have been saved and serving the Lord now for thirty some years, and shortly after I was, well, maybe even before I was saved, but I'm just referring to back the last 25, 30 years ago, there was a ground swelling of people who adhered to what was commonly referred to as the charismatic movement, okay? Without going into a lot of detail, the charismatic movement is is a movement of, of churches and believers who, although frequently believe the gospel is by grace through faith alone in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, Put a non-biblical and overemphasis on the spiritual gifts that are given to believers, and and they emphasize things typically that are miraculous in nature, the speaking in other tongues, the miracles, the healings, the wonders, the miraculous. These are the types of people that you typically find on the Christian television stations. If you ever watch that kind of stuff, um, hopefully you have better things to do. Anyway, the. The problem with what they teach, okay, and this, again, 25, 30 years ago, it was a, it was a big deal. They were gr- gaining popularity like crazy, okay? The idea is that, that although they may have presented the gospel accurately, they also believe that if you did not continue your life in a, in a level of personal holiness and sanctification, that you could potentially lose the salvation that you received as a free gift, and that's a real problem because ultimately then that goes back to our system of works, does it not? It really does. Well, those churches are still around and that's fine. And again, my, I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just trying to help you understand that historically in my lifetime, there has been a great rise of this movement of thought and it has kind of waned. It has kind of fallen a little bit as far as national uh, popularity. But of the last five years of, or so, there is a new movement that is gaining popularity. And this new movement is referred to as the New Calvinists. And, and the phrase I put in your notes actually comes from their literature. They tent, the, the new up-and-coming young people that are giving in to this philosophy of Calvinism are referring to themselves as the young, the restless, and the reformed. Now, I know that sounds like something you might want to chuckle about, but that's what they're calling themselves. And the idea is this. You think about this soberly for a second. What they are doing is, is they are taking the lives of young people. We have a lot of our younger people sitting here in the front. And uh, they're taking the young people and they are saying to them, look, is a lot of the stuff that's been going on in Christianity for your lifetime It's got a lot of emotion, it's got a lot of pizzazz, it's got a lot of lights and shiny things, but the truth of the matter is there's not a lot of substance to it, and and the fact is that that's true. And aren't you tired of that, and don't you wish there was some more substance to it? And they are. The young people of today really are looking for real answers, maybe more than before, I don't know. And so these people come in, and they begin to teach, and they say, look, let me give you the meat the doctrinal meat to sink your teeth into so that you can really understand we're going to pull back the curtain and we're going to see what God's really doing and pulling the levers and how it all really works out. And so these young people who are a little bit restless in their Christianity, looking for real answers that they're not finding in their otherwise feel-good churches, are, are running in droves to this reformed theology. I mean in droves. And you've probably run into a bunch of them and may or may not even know it because they're everywhere. Literally, they're everywhere. This resurgence has really become apparent in like the last five years or so in this interest in the teachings of this man, John Calvin. So, think of it this way. While 25, 30 years ago, the charismatics drew people into that movement based on your emotion it was, it was emotionally stimulating. I mean, there was a level of fire and enthusiasm and shouting and all that stuff that is appealing, by the way. The Calvinists, on the other hand, draw people with not an appeal to emotion, but with an appeal to intellect. And so the people now come into it thinking, hey, wait a minute. The charismatics used to be emotionally arrogant, We are the gifted ones. We have all the gifts of the Spirit. Some of you don't think you have. We are, they wouldn't say it this way, better than you because we understand the fullness of the Spirit and how God works. On this side, the Calvinists are saying, hey, wait a minute, we are better than you. They wouldn't say that that way because we understand the depths of God and predestination and all this kind of stuff that you don't really understand. So if you really want to be smart, you're going to hang with us because we're the smart guys. And and that is a very crass way of telling you exactly what is going on in today's current culture. The Apostle Paul, and I want you to see this because both of those situations, by the way, are out of balance. The, The truth always stands alone. So this growing trend, okay, is a popularity for what otherwise would be mainstream, orthodox Christians to convert to Reformed theology. The Apostle Paul saw the need in his day to warn people about followers that were dangerous and to be avoided. And in fact, I want you to understand this before we go on, that when Paul identified certain men who were dangerous. In the Bible, the words of God, heaven and earth will pass away, my word will never pass away. The Apostle Paul called them out by name. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Look at a few verses I've given you. First Timothy chapter one. Paul writes the letters to Timothy. Timothy is a young minister. Paul is training him how to be an effective leader of a church. And he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and verses 19 and 20 about some guys holding faith and a good conscience which some having put away concerning the faith have made shipwreck of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. He tells Timothy about these two guys who have concerning the faith made a shipwreck. They've put it away. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15 says this, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. So Paul calls them out by name to warn the people, you need to be careful about these guys. They're dangerous. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 10, he calls out another one, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, And has departed unto Thessalonica. So Paul was not afraid to, out of of a motivation of love, to tell his followers, Look, you have got to realize there are some people that you need to be careful of. My desire is not to go on a raid and a tirade to just, you know, list off everybody I got a beef with or anything like that. I promise you. But there are some very popular megachurch pastors and authors whose books line the shelves of Christian bookstores, many of which you may read, many of which you may have enjoyed. And they ascribe, I just want you to know that they ascribe to Reformed theology. That's all I want you to know. So some of the names that are very popular would be John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Stephen Lawson, Tim Keller, Mark Driscoll, David Platt, Matt Chandler, Francis Chan, Mark Batterson, Mark Dever. You ever heard of these names? I don't know. D.A. Carson, Alistair Begg. There are people who are very, listen, these are intelligent men. And you may have read or listened to sermons and been encouraged by them. Allow me to say this. Not necessarily, just don't get me wrong, not necessarily everything that they have to say is all wrong. They have a lot of good things to say. I just want you to be aware of the fact that when it comes to the biblical plan of salvation, these are a short list of guys who are very popular today that are out there and ascribe to these five main points of Calvinism that we're going to look at in just a second. They believe that that's how God saves people. There are organizations out there and conferences and camps. If you've ever heard of the Gospel Coalition, strictly a Calvinist organization, there's a big conference in Atlanta every year called the Passion Conference. Typically bring together a lot of cool Christian bands and then they have somebody get up and talk about Calvinism. Uh, Resurgence conferences. a group called SOMA. There's the Acts 29 Network. And virtually any Bible college that does not come from an independent fundamental Baptist background these days is at least tipping their hat to reform theology and if not overtly teaching it, They certainly allow teachers within the faculty and staff to propagate these things. You need to be aware of the fact that this groundswell is growing and it is ever before us. You need to be able to have the certainty of the words of truth. That's why we're doing what we're doing. So because of this resurgence of popularity in this 400-year-old system, because it can be proved to be a non-biblical teaching... And because we need to inform you, especially you younger people, that this is what's going on all around you, it is necessary to address this teaching in a thorough way. So our plan is to investigate this false teaching system in light of consistent biblical revelation and interpretation. So let's look at the fifth point, a general overview of Calvinism. So who is this guy, John Calvin? He lived from 1509 to 1564. He's most well known for his system of theology written in his famous literary work called "The Institutes of the Christian Religion." You don't need to look that up if you were to purchase the Institutes of the Christian religion. It, it would take up this much space on your bookshelf. It is volumes like instead of encyclopedias, okay? So generally, the main points, if we were just to whittle it all down, of his teaching, came to be known later by an acronym, and the acronym is TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Okay, now John Calvin, disclaimer, himself never came up with the acronym. John Calvin never systematized his teaching on soteriology according to this TULIP. That's something that happened years later by others as they continue to analyze his teaching. However, his actual teaching from the Institutes absolutely teaches these five main points that are made with the acronym TULIP, okay, and you have those right in front of you, so there's five statements. You can guess right away what the first letters are to fill in in your notes. First one is total depravity, and I'm just going to give you like a one-sentence definition of each of these points because the next four days is all about digging into the details of what all this stuff is really all about. You may have heard of these and never studied them. If that's you, please come back because you will fully understand them. Well, at least you'll much more fully understand them. Total depravity is taught by Calvinists, not, we, we will explain the, the, the true biblical teaching throughout the days. It is taught by Calvinists that unregenerate man, lost man, is totally in sin, amen, to the extent that he has the inability to freely accept Jesus Christ. So when they say total depravity, they don't really mean that man is just so sinful he can't save himself. That's what they might want you to think they mean. But what they really teach and believe is that man is totally unable to even have the free will to call upon God for salvation. You don't even have the ability to call upon God for salvation. Total depravity. The second point, and really the most important of the five, is unconditional election. Unconditional election teaches that God, by a sovereign, eternal decree, before he ever created anything in Genesis 1-1, unconditionally elected a certain number of men to salvation. Now, the corollary of this is ugly, but it's also true. That means that he also unconditionally elected a certain number of men to damnation. And so it's kind of like pulling the petals off the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And God, according to them, before the foundation of the world, you don't have a free will anyway. He decided if you're going to heaven, it's because he chose you. And if you're not going to heaven, it's because he chose you not to go to heaven. And it doesn't matter what you think or say or believe. There's nothing you can do to change it. Unconditional election. L, limited atonement. Just like it says... The atonement is Christ dying for our sins, okay? So this means that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, only made atonement for the group of men previously elected to salvation. Jesus' death is efficacious only for those whom he chose. If you are not one of the chosen, Jesus didn't die for you. Jesus only died for you if you're one of the chosen. Limited atonement. The atonement is limited to the people who are The elect, that's what they teach. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. You have to pay attention to the adjectives. God irresistibly, you couldn't say no to it if you wanted to, overpowers the will of the elect sinner with his grace. It's almost ridiculous because they say you don't even have a will. Overpowers the will of the elect sinner with his grace and regenerates him, granting him faith and repentance to believe on Jesus Christ. So the ones who are elect to be saved, before it all comes to fruition and they realize it at some point in their adult life, it only happens because God overwhelms you with his grace such that you couldn't refuse it if you wanted to. They believe that. The Bible teaches the contrary. The last point, perseverance of the saints. Uh, By the way, when we get into this, arguably the most misunderstood of the five points. Perseverance of the saints teaches, according to the Calvinists, that all of the elect that have been regenerated by God will, absolutely will, persevere in the faith and ultimately die in a state of grace. In other words, don't confuse perseverance of the saints with preservation of the saints. It is, they are not teaching preserva- you are preserved by the Holy Spirit. That is a Bible doctrine. They are teaching that everyone who God has elected will continue to walk faithfully with the Lord throughout their life. They leave no room for a carnal Christian. God's true elect will persevere. That's what they teach. And so basically, when you analyze all five of these points, and that's what we're going to be doing, really, really, the simplistic conclusion is they all really just teach different angles of the one main point, which is unconditional election. Either God predestined and predetermined who goes to heaven and who goes to hell without us having a word to do about it, or He did not. And all of the other four really just support and address the ways that that must have come to be. That is the teaching of John Calvin. That is the teaching that was predominant through the Protestant Reformation. That's why they are referred to historically as reformed. So starting tonight, Monday night, Tuesday night and Wednesday night, Pastor Mark Trotter will be here 6:30 each night. Please mark your calendars and come. And he will take specifically four different passages of scripture that Calvinist reformed people typically refer to these passages in defense of their system. Pastor Mark is going to come, and he is going to teach us these passages as they would purport them, but then give us the true biblical understanding. You're going to want to be there for that. In the morning sessions, if you happen to be free, you are all welcome to attend. Pastor Brett Bartlett from Wildwood Baptist Church in Michigan and I are going to share the responsibility and walk through a detailed presentation of the tulip. And we are going to go through the history and origin of Calvinism and then T U L I P through 3 days. And we're going to ha- and it's all in your schedule how that's all going to be laid out. By the time we're done, we will have sufficiently covered this philosophy of teaching that is commonly referred to as Calvinism. Number 6. The methodology of false teaching. The methodology of false teaching. If people are going to teach something and it's not actually accurate, how do, they, how do they get off doing that? How do they do that? Well, it's fairly obvious. I mean, how do we know if something's accurate anyway? The only way you can know it's accurate is if the Bible says it, right? Well, everybody uses a Bible, right? I mean, doesn't everybody quote something? Everybody's got a verse, right? So the issue then becomes what the Bible refers to as private interpretation, And the Bible says very clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 20, he says, Knowing this, first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Uh, We have no right, friends, to take God's Word and privately interpret it according to what we think. Anytime you have a false religious system, anytime you have false teaching and the Bible, over and over and over again warns us of the wolves in sheep clothing. The people that will teach falsehood. They will teach things using God's word even. And the only way they can possibly do it is by private interpretation. It's the only possible way. And the corollary, obviously, the the right way to do it is what we'll refer to as biblical interpretation. How can we know that our way of interpretation is right and their way of interpretation is wrong? These are all good questions. These are questions I would have had. Well, it's very obvious. If it is the right interpretation, how could we possibly know? Well, only if God tells us in his word itself. You see, the Bible is the greatest book that ever existed, amen, and mainly because, not just obviously because it came from God, obviously because it's eternal, but it's also the most dangerous book that's ever been written because people trip and break their spiritual necks on it if they're not careful. The thing about the Bible that's so unique is the Bible is self-defining. You need not go to external sources to define the Bible. The Bible defines itself. And that's critically important for you to understand. So biblical interpretation, the first time that the Bible ever uses the word interpretation is in Genesis chapter 40. And it's the story of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, right? He's the brother that was hated, and he's sold into slavery, and he goes into Egypt, and he's thrown into prison after that whole deal with Potiphar and his wife falsely accused. And he's in prison, and these other guys dream dreams, and they don't know what's going on, and they come to Joseph. The first time the word interpretation shows up, notice what it says in Genesis 40 and verse 8. And they said unto him, we have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. So biblical interpretation is always going to be of God. It's going to be God's interpretation. Biblical interpretation is going to be spiritual It's going to be God communicating to us what he wants to communicate. Well, you ask, how does God communicate to us? Well, that's obvious. I'm going to make it obvious. It's it's right here. It's the word of God. That's how he communicates. That's the only way he communicates with us. So let's break that down a little bit. I have gave you some verses to to consider. John chapter 6 and verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So the word of God, the very words, they are spiritual. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17 and going through the armor of God. And by the way, you could back up and start in verse 10 and read this whole passage. It all refers to what we're talking about. But lastly, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The spirit of God will use the word of God to communicate to us what God wants us to know. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse number 4, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul, with all of his oratory skills, did not say that the power of what I've got to say to you is just because I'm so smart. The power is because the Holy Spirit gave it. And a little later on in that same chapter in verse number 13, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, which would be any private interpretation, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. How does that happen? Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So the Spirit of God takes the spiritual word of God and he teaches them to us by defining the terms within the Bible to give us the biblical interpretation. Listen, friends, if you just get that, that'll help you for the rest of your life. But there is a spirit at work that will quote verses. And here's the dirty little secret about Calvinism or a lot of other systems but specifically this one. Is what they will do is this. Here's the sleight of hand. They'll take a bible word. They'll pull it out. devoid of biblical definition. They will redefine the word according to their philosophical system and then reinsert that word back into the Bible. Now they've programmed your brain to think predestinate means before the foundation of the world, God decided I was saved. No, that's not what it means according to the Bible. They will redefine it void of the Bible, replant it in the Bible, and then say, see? See all the verses? And if you're not, if you're not paying attention, you can be deceived. I mean, it's sneaky. It really is. We're going to pull back the covers on all that this week. We're going to make it very clear. It's not really that hard to understand. So, private interpretation is any interpretation that cannot be defined by comparing Scripture with Scripture. It's man made. Okay, lastly, seven, a sober warning. And we're going to end with this a sober warning. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul says this. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. So my goal for you this week is that you would understand the true so that you can recognize the counterfeit. The Secret Service, the, the people who deal with counterfeit currency, they just spend hours and hours and hours and hours studying the, what actual money looks like. So that if a counterfeit bill hits their hands, they just, it just doesn't look right, it doesn't feel right, it doesn't smell right. There's just, something, there's just something not right about it. The more you know the truth, you don't have to study necessarily every detail of every cultic group that ever existed. You just need to know the truth ferociously. And then when something else pops up, you're like, that, is, that just doesn't sound right. That's the goal. Would you agree that Galatians 1 is written basically saying, That any plan of salvation that differs from the one that Paul preached by grace through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ is another gospel. And that any preacher thereof is accursed. That's what he's saying, right? So that includes all the world religions, Christian or non-Christian, even if they claim that an angel of God came down and gave me this new set of instructions. Now listen, guys, seriously. Seriously. Do a little bit of homework. I mean, just think about it. Are you tracking where God has taken you on this journey? Do you realize if if you had to go home and make a list of religions that you've heard of that some angel appeared to somebody and said, here's the new set of rules, you can discount it and say, ah, he was dreaming. He had too much beer and pizza. I don't know, you say what you want. (laughs) According to this, maybe an angel did appear to him. They're accursed angels. And the gospel that doesn't square with what the Bible teaches is a cursed gospel. And you need to know that. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, that, that's the devil, small g, God of this world, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them friends if you don't think the devil's involved in religion you are not paying attention we read it before i want to remind you of it again second corinthians 11 3 and 4 but i fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled eve through his subtlety so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in christ it is simple For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. So if at the end of this week we will have successfully proven that Calvinism does not meet the biblical criteria, then it's another gospel. It's not just a different perspective. And the preachers thereof are accursed. Now, something inside a lot of you just kind of twinged a little bit. He just said it. He said that out loud, didn't he? Listen, that's why I called this point a sober warning. I'm not trying to propose anything other than point my finger towards what God clearly says. And that's all we're going to do for these four days. You draw your conclusions but your eternal soul depends upon it. Listen. I've spent a lot of time studying this subject. And we're going to get into the details and I don't want to jump ahead but I just feel like I need to make this point. For example, honest Calvinists People who are a part of a church that teaches this Reformed theology and the whole idea of predestination, many, many, many of them, if they are honest in their own heart and soul, struggle with the issue of eternal security. The whole system was devised to be kind of a counter to the idea that man does works. They came, the Reformation was to to reform the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church through the Dark Ages. And they landed on some truth. They just took it too far. But you think about it. If you had to do absolutely nothing whatsoever to participate in your salvation, I'm not talking about good works. I'm saying that if God either elected you or he didn't, How do you really know? Because you go to a Reformed church? Because you can quote the creeds? Because you know some answers? I mean, how do you really know that maybe I wasn't elected? And honest Calvinists struggle because at the end of the day, they had zero participation whatsoever. They didn't even do what God commands us to do, and that is to repent and believe the gospel. Now, we don't do anything of works to earn salvation at all. The Bible is clear, but we participate by a free will in agreeing with God's story. And because we simply do what God said to do, repent and believe, then we can know with 100% certainty that God will do what he said he will do. And that's save our souls. And we have eternal security. And the Calvinist system can't drum up, they can't manufacture the security. That's why they have the perseverance, which oddly enough takes the extremist grace view and flips it back into the work side. So now the only way that you can know if you're the elect is you better work for it. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? Listen, I don't know where you're at this morning, but here's what God wants you to do. To confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And whosoever that will do that shall be saved. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what your background's all about. I don't care how dirty your life has been like mine has been. None of that matters. You are offered, each and every one of you are offered the same exact offer because we are all in the same boat. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why would you not be sure of that today and walk out of here in about 10 minutes and still not be sure of that. When God offers, I just cannot understand how people can understand that and say no thanks, or maybe I'll just wait a little bit. I just don't get that. We're going to pray in just a second. I want to remind you of one last Bible verse, and this is what I expect. By the end of this week, you should all be able to confidently apply in your life. Ephesians 4.14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive if you know that you've received Christ as your savior if you know that you're born again and have eternal life in him that's that's great you need to understand the ground on which you stand and not be tossed about with every wind of doctrine but if you're here and you're not sure, can I just tell you, we're going to get into some deep stuff this week, okay? We really are. And I, and I hope it exercises your mind and I hope you enjoy it. But the truth of the matter is, we're going to end up right where we started today. The gospel is simple. It's just, God loved you that much that he said, you don't have to do anything, just respond. Respond somebody offers you a gift, the only thing you need to do is say, thank you. That's all. Will you do that? Let's pray together. And if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to ask you a question. If you're here today and you are not 100% sure that if your life were to end today, you'd have a home in heaven. But you say, Jeff, I want that. I want to know. Today is the day I want to repent of my sins, believe the gospel, and receive the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to pray intelligently. If that's you, I'm not sure about eternal life for myself, but I want to nail it down right now. I want to receive Christ as my Savior. Would you just hold your hand up high so I can know there's people like that? I got people upstairs, and I got several people downstairs. God bless you. The rest of you, let's just pray that God does what only God can do and just reinforces in our heart and puts steel in our spine to stand for the truth because it's that important. I want to pray for these that raise their hand. God, please, I pray in Jesus' name that each and every one that raised their hand and is wrestling with this idea of their eternal soul, that they would just peacefully, finally surrender. There's nothing that they need to do except just acknowledge the fact that there's nothing they can do, but that you did it all already. And so if they would just cry out to you and just confess that they indeed are sinful, they have blown it, their efforts have led them down the wrong path, and they would just humbly ask you, Lord Jesus, come, forgive me of my sins. Give me the gift of eternal life. Come into my heart and my life and lead me. I will follow you the rest of my life. I pray they would do that right now and not delay. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to teach us. And thank you for the body of the church that can edify one another in love as we look into some of these issues. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody stand up with me.